Welcome to our series on the book of Hebrews. In this study, lead pastor Tim Brooks and associate pastor Paul Kern will be sharing life-impacting truths. The Gospels reveal what Jesus did on earth. But now that Jesus has resurrected from the dead and entered into heaven, what does he do? What role does he play? And how does that affect our lives today? These questions and more will be explored in this informative and revealing 10-part series. Now, join Associate Pastor Paul Kern. All right, welcome. Welcome to our midweek service. All of you that are joining us by, yeah, give Jesus a hand clap. Yeah, absolutely. Love it. All you guys that are joining us by podcast, we want to welcome you to our midweek service. We are in Hebrews Lesson 4. Man, I have loved this lesson. You know, I have to admit that it's been a while since I had actually read the book of Hebrews. And now that I've really been reading it a lot lately, I was like, man, I've been missing out. This is really good stuff. So I've been really excited about uh, this series. So we're we're in lesson four. And and if you want to go ahead and turn into chapter five of the book of Hebrews, that's where we're going to be. Hebrews is transferring us from old covenant to, to new covenant. It's teaching believers how to see and live life through the heart of Jesus, not through the old covenant law. So in, in chapter 5, verse 11, which is where we're going to start, and Paul really gives a hearty call to spiritual maturity to the believers. And he starts out saying, there's so much more that we would like to say about this, but it is difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and you don't seem to listen. You've been believers for so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's Word. You're like babies who need milk. You're unable to eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and does not know to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. Now, you know, honestly, church, this ought to make all of us sit up because the fact is this is written to Christian believers. I mean, this is written to people who are in church, who are followers of Christ, and he is saying, you're not spiritually mature. You've been sitting under the Word for a very long time. You ought to be spiritually mature, but you're not spiritually mature. He's saying you, you can't learn. And the fact is, you know, this year as we're talking about our vision for our church being stronger and stronger, if, if we're going to become stronger, we have to learn what the Word is wanting us to learn. We don't want to be people who get stuck being the same spiritual maturity You know, you can age physically, right? I mean, you know, you're born, you're a baby, you live on milk and you eat baby food and everything's kind of done for you. But, you know, you begin to grow physically and there's certain things that you're expected to take on and certain new levels that you're expected to begin to operate in. And the same thing is true in the realm of the spirit. He's saying you're spiritually dull. You won't listen. And this just can't be. We have to be people who are intentionally growing. And I think there's a a real danger uh, for people who don't preach, people who don't teach the Word, people who don't 
uh, head up Bible studies and people who don't uh, put themselves in positions where they're forced to study. See, I don't, I don't have an option. I have to study because I have to come out here and I have to speak and I have to give the word. And, you know, I'm the administrator over our internship. And so we have lots of college age young adults that are here and I have to communicate information to them and I have to teach. But if you're not in that place, it can be real easy for you to come to church, to have the meal prepared, to have all the food cut up, all the work has been done, and then you're basically spoon-fed the Bible. And it's a very dangerous place, and, and I'm not being critical of anyone here tonight because, I mean, it's just it's the way things can be if we're not careful. You know, I, I kid my wife and, and all the time, and I said, you've ac- absolutely ruined me. I mean, if you go before me, I'm in big trouble because I can't take care of myself anymore. You know, she does things for me, and I think we have to be very, very careful that we don't become dependent upon and stunt our growth as Christians. And this is what we're seeing here. Paul is admonishing believers. You're dull toward the Word. You, You ought to be in a position where you're teaching now, but you're still having to be taught. And I think one of the first steps of spiritual regression are the term backsliding. You know, we've all heard that term before, you know, people who backslide in their walk with Christ. I think the first real indicator of that is when, and I want you to hear me, it's when the Word becomes boring to you. It just gets boring. And it can happen to anybody. You know, it can happen to a pastor. It can happen to a traveling evangelist. It can happen to a, a preacher or a teacher of the Word. It, 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 doesn't, it, it, it doesn't, you know, show favoritism to certain people. It can happen to any of us where it can just become boring. And here's my encouragement to our church. Don't let it. Don't let your relationship with Jesus and your study of God's Word become something that you did years ago when you got saved, but because you've been walking with the Lord for an amount of time, now that's kind of become something that's fallen by the wayside. You know, our uh, associate pastor, David Pate, tonight as he was stage hosting, he was talking about how we all have busy weeks. And, you know, we can have busy days where we don't open our Bibles, and those busy days can turn into busy weeks. And those busy weeks can turn into busy months. And those busy months can turn into busy years. Where we really haven't taken time to, to buy a new book, a spiritual book of growth, to really invest ourselves in the Word. In verse 12, and I, I want everybody to look at this with me. He says, you have been believers for so long that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you the basic things again about God's Word. And, and Paul was saying, you know, we've got people here who have an inability to share the things that God has done in their life. Now, obviously, not everybody has the gift to teach, right? Because that is one of the gifts. That is a gift. Uh, you know, there's nine spiritual gifts and there's nine spiritual fruit, and one of the spiritual gifts is, a, is an ability to teach. And not everybody has that gifting, but anybody can share things that they have learned, Anybody can impart and share things that God has done 
in their life. And he's saying, you know, in, instead of helping other people grow, these Hebrew Christians here were in, in real need of relearning the simple things, the basic foundational truths that they should have under their belt already. And they're having to go over and over again to simple basic truths that th these are things that they ought to already know. So the question is, you, you know, the, the, these guys being in church for a long period of time, where's the growth? And for all of us, you know, if, if, if let's say, for example, you've been a Christian for one year. Well, there's only a certain level of expectation that's going to be placed upon you because somebody isn't expecting you to be like a person who's been walking with the Lord for 10 years. You know, really, in my opinion, you know, when I encounter for example, an intern who is maybe young in the Lord and, they, you know, maybe they've been walking with Christ for a couple of three years. You know, I don't have the same level of expectation of them that I do somebody who's walk, been walking with Christ for 20 years. I expect there to be a different level of maturity, a different level of response, a different level of knowledge of God's Word. I think that that is where we all should be. And so he talks about this spiritual milk, and that's just pre-digested food. You know, mothers years and years ago before we had Gerber baby food and all that, you know, the stuff that we mix up, one of the things that they would do is they would take the food, they would chew the food up, get it ground up really, really good, and then they would take it out of their mouth and they would feed it to their babies. And that's what birds do. I mean, you know, they get a bug and they chew it all up and then they basically, you know, vomit it in the mouth of the, of the baby birds. And so they're just getting pre-digested food. Everything's done. And, you know, I think all of us have to ask the question, what is our source of food? You know, as, as we begin to grow as Christians, we ought to be able to prepare some of our own meals. You know, when we're raising our children, you know, we, we cut their food up and we teach them how to use a fork and a knife and how to hold it the proper way and how to cut their food. And, and, but then as they begin to mature, you know, moms begin to say, you can go in there and fix you a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Go do that for yourself. And then we begin to move them to, okay, you go grab the box of macaroni out of the cabinet and read the directions, boil some water, pour it in there, strain it out. You, you can do that yourself. And so as parents, we, we, we guide our children into a place of maturity. Well, God wants to move us in that same direction of maturity. And, and as we grow in the Word, we, we must develop an ability to know how to apply the Word in our everyday life. So when I read the Bible, I'm not just reading it for fun. The Bible is teaching me how to interact with people on my job. The Bible is teaching me how to talk to my wife. The Bible is teaching me how to get along with friends. The Bible is teaching me how to handle my money. The Bible is teaching me how to respond to tragic events that happen in this world. You know, the Bible becomes something that we apply every day. See, the Word gives us right and wrong. Amen? I mean, it gives us that standard of right and wrong. We look at the Bible and here's what's right, here's what's wrong. And as you mature, you begin to recognize an ability to distinguish between what is right and what is wrong. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about here. This is right, this is wrong. Do this, don't do that. Participate in this, don't participate in that. As a matter of fact, look at chapter 6. 
verse 1. So let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. and Let us go instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds and placing our faith in God. You don't need further instruction about baptism and laying on hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And, and so, God willing, we will move forward into further understanding. So, this is a, a, you know, it's a real call to grow up, to become spiritually mature. Let's go on, verse 4. For it's impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened, those who've experienced the good things of heaven, shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the Word and God, the power of the age to come, and who then turn away from God. So it's impossible to bring such people back to repentance by rejecting the Son of God, they themselves are nailing to the cross once again and holding Him up to public shame. Dear friends, even though we are talking this way, we really don't believe it applies to you. We are confident that you are meant for better things things to come with salvation for God is not unjust and he will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have shown love to him by caring for other believers as you still do our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent instead you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance so <clears throat> mature this is the the topic that Paul is talking about so a mature person is less selfish they don't focus on themselves everything isn't about them you know one of the things that I talk to our interns about and just the season of life that they're in and not being critical of these guys at all because they've got a lot of things to think about. You know, they've got to think about their future and where they're going to live and career and college and life and ministry and marriage and all of these, you know, these big things that are out there in front of them, these big exciting things that God has for them. But one of the things that I tell them that you've got to be really careful about, it's also very easy to become very self-focused in this season of your life, to become very self-centered in this season of your life because what you're thinking about are all the things that pertain to your life and your goals and your dreams and the things that you want to do. But as we mature, we become more others-centered than we are self-centered. And then Paul begins to talk about in verse 1, he talks about repenting from evil deeds and repenting and, and falling away and coming back. And, you know, he begins to discuss this immature behavior of some Christians and you know I, I, I remember running into this and now this happened to me before I was saved actually before I was living my life for Christ I had some buddies um, that I ran with and you know we partied and we drank and we you know we did drugs and, and I'm ashamed to admit that I did any of those kinds of things but but that was a part of my life BC and you know, I would have these guys that would do these things for me and yet I knew that they were Christians. I knew they were. I was not living for Christ. I was not following the Lord. I was not professing Jesus in my life. Although I'd had experiences with him, I wasn't following him. Yet these guys, what I would see happen is, they would party with me on Friday and Saturday night, but then on Sunday they would be at church. And they would be down at the altar repenting of the evil deeds that they had done on Friday and Saturday night. And so 
I saw this, re- this repetitive thing happening. And, and to be honest with you, being in the ministry for the number of years that I have, I mean, I'm almost going on 25 years of being in the ministry, and I've seen a lot of people come and a lot of people go. I've seen a lot of young people, you know, make commitments to Christ. And, and I've seen a lot of people, church, who rededicate, who get saved and mess up and rededicate and get saved and mess up. And, rede- and I've met people who've gotten saved eight or nine times, 15, 20 times, and rededicate and get saved and mess up. And, and they're in this immature place in life. And, and listen, I'm not being insensitive to Christians who struggle. I'm, I am very, I, I, one of my gifts is a gift of mercy, and people who know me know that is one of my gifts. I mean, I am a choleric leader. I am a outgoing leader, but I have the gift of mercy, and I do care about people when they struggle, and man, I pray for people all the time, but there has to be a point in your life where you shift gears, and life changes for you in your walk with Jesus, and you just got to, you, you have to come to a point where you're not just trying to get saved and rededicated and saved and rededicated and saved and rededicated, but you begin to move into the meat. You begin to move into the maturity of what the Lord has for us. So Paul gives this real stiff warning in verses 4 through 6 against willfully turning away from God and going back to your old life. You know, you've got to come to a place where that decision is settled for you. There's no back door. There's no, well, if this doesn't work out, then I'll go do this. There comes a point where you, you brick the door, guys. You, you board the door. You, you blow up the door. I mean, it, there's not an option for you. I'm not going back. The only direction that I have to go is forward. No matter what happens, that's the way I'm going to go. You've got to come to that place in your life because if you don't, you'll never move into all the great and awesome things that God has for your life as a mature believer. And there's so many wonderful things that come with being a mature believer. All right, look at verse 13. Paul says, for example, there was God's promise to Abraham. Since there was no one greater to swear by, God took an oath in his own name, saying, I will certainly bless you, and I will multiply your descendants beyond number. And then Abraham, watch this, and then Abraham waited, what? Mm, patiently. That's such a hard, that's a hard one for me. It's always been a hard one for me. I've just never really been a very good at patience. Some people are. I mean, I get around some people, there's just patient as the day is long, you know. And me, I'm like, if it doesn't happen yesterday, I'm, I'm about to lose it. Abraham waited patiently, and he received what God promised. He waited patiently, and he received what God promised. Now when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, the oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. And so God has given both his promise and his oath. And this, these two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope 
that lies before us. And this hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us, and he has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So as Abraham waited patiently, he received the promise. He got what God told him he was going to give him. So that shows us that we have to be patient as we wait on God to fulfill the promises that concern our lives, that concern our families, that concern our friends and our future. But God has bound himself with an oath. God has made a, an eternal promise to all of us, and God can't lie. God is bound to that, and, and, and God is unchangeable. So what that does is, he, the, the author says, that gives us this confidence and it, it's literally like an anchor. It, it, it's an anchor. It holds you, and it secures you, and it, and it can't cause you to be swayed or, or blown away by the difficulties of life or the waves of emotions that hit us all and the, and the tragedies and the difficulties that we all experience being in a fallen world. It's an anchor for us that, that holds us, and it leads us through the curtain into God's presence. And man, in that place, there is fullness of joy. And in that place, there can be all kinds of things going on around you and in your family and in your health. But you can find a place of refuge and peace because you're in the presence of Almighty God. And there's just nothing like it. Jesus provides that for us. In chapter 7, we return to Melchizedek. And we're not going to go back and look at all that Pastor Tim covered. If you didn't get to listen to uh, Lesson 3, it was so good as Tim talked about Melchizedek. But we saw the order of Melchizedek, and we saw that that order was better than the Levitical priesthood. And chapter 7 shows that there is a better covenant than the Abrahamic covenant. And so he's trying to move us from the Old Testament covenant into the New Testament covenant and mature us into the life of a New Testament Christian and a New Testament believer. So we spent a lot of time on chapter 7, lesson 3, and, and Melchizedek and all that Melchizedek was about and how Melchizedek was a type and shadow of Jesus and, and, and Abraham paid his tithe to Melchizedek. I mean, he literally paid a tithe to Melchizedek. So the tithe is 10%. That's what the word tithe actually means. It means 10th. So it's 10%. So you can't tithe 5%. <laughs> I mean, I'm just giving clarification. Because you know how our, how our flesh does. You know, I remember when I was first learning how to tithe, and I tithed based on how much money I had coming in that week. I didn't tithe on the fact that God was my provider. I tithed on the fact of whether or not I felt like tithing, or it was convenient for me to tithe, or I had enough money to tithe, because I, I didn't understand that God was my provider, not my job. And I put my trust in my job, or I put 
my trust in my 401k or I put my trust in my investments instead of putting my trust in Almighty God. And so the tithe is 10%. And so we see this, him, Abraham paying his tithe to Melchizedek. And so you have to understand, because I've, I've heard people say that you don't tithe anymore under the new covenant. I've heard that said to me. And, you know, I've studied it and looked into it myself, and I've read books that, that go both ways. But you have to understand that the tithe did not originate with Moses. The tithe was not an old, was not a law that Moses established. It happened before the Mosaic Covenant. And if it happened before the Mosaic Covenant, because Abraham was the one that did it, if it happened before the Mosaic Covenant, then it doesn't end with a Mosaic law. Abraham tithed long before the law was ever given, and he tithed to Melchizedek. And that is an illustration of a picture of Jesus. Jesus tithed. Jesus tithed. And not only did Jesus tithe, God tithes. Do you know that God tithed his son? Jesus was the firstborn of many brethren. He tithed his son. Do you know that God tithed a day? There were seven. God tithed one. He tithed a day. See, the principle of the tithe has been around since the creation of time. And so Aaron and any of his descendants, the priest, they could claim to be, the, none of these guys could claim to be with no beginning or no end. They were people who were born and they were people who died, but Melchizedek, who is a type of Christ, he had no beginning and he had no end. So the Jewish people, they, listen, these guys believed very strongly in racial solidarity. They didn't mix with any other people. And they also believed very strongly in keeping the old covenant from generation to generation. So when Abraham did this, when Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, all the unborn generations were committed to this. All of them were committed to it because Abraham is the father of our faith. He was the one that God used to start it all. And all of the tribe of Levi that became priests still submitted to the priesthood of Melchizedek. You can find it right there in the Old Covenant. So we see that they submitted there. So Hebrews shows in chapter 7 that the Levitical priesthood is submitted to the priesthood of Melchizedek. And that is the line in the order of Jesus. That is a type of Jesus. All right, let's look at verse 11. So if the priesthood of Levi, on which the law was based, could have achieved the perfection God intended, why did God need to establish a different priesthood with a priest in the order of Melchizedek instead of the order of Levi and Aaron? And if the priesthood is changed, the law must also be changed to permit it. For the priest are talking about belongs to the different tribe whose members have never served at the altar as priests. And what I mean is, our Lord came from the tribe of Judah, 
And Moses never mentioned priests coming from that tribe. This change has been made very clear since different priests, who is like Melchizedek, has appeared. Jesus became a priest, not by meeting the physical requirements of belonging to the tribe of Levi, but by the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. And the psalmist pointed this out when he prophesied, you were a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Yes, the old requirement about the priesthood was set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law, now watch this, for the law never made anything perfect. But now we have confidence in a better hope through which we draw near to God. So we, we saw this in lesson three as Pastor Tim covered and talked about Melchizedek. We can go over and read in Galatians chapter three where Paul really covers this thoroughly, talking about the new life in Christ as compared to trying to live your life by the letter of the law, which brings death. You know, just trying to be good enough, trying to do right enough, trying to do what God wants you to do and not disappoint him and trying to earn our own righteousness. It's impossible to do, church. It's impossible to do. That's why the reality of Jesus in our life is so vital and so important. So the entire system of the old covenant law was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And Hebrews is trying to get us to move into a better covenant. But here's the thing. You know that you can be a New Testament Christian and still let your life be governed by Old Testament law? Well, I got to pray. I, you know, if I, I, hadn't, I hadn't prayed, and, you know, I'm not right with God if I don't pray. Okay, so how much praying do you need to do to be right with God? I'm just curious. I mean, you have to pray five minutes a day. You have to pray ten minutes a day. You know, I have interns ask me sometimes, Paul, how much do you pray? And I won't tell them how much I pray. <clears throat> and Jesus was constantly changing things up all the time, how he healed people and how he did things, because people want to make a formula. We want to make things and turn it into religion. So how much church attendance do you have to have to be right with God? How much above your tithe? The Bible says give your tithe in your offering. So how much above your tithe in your offering do you have to give to be right with God? How much worship do you have to do? How much kneeling do you have to do? I mean, are you seeing what I'm saying? See, people get caught up in living their life bound by the letter of the law and Hebrews is trying to move us into this new life of relationship with Jesus Christ where, man, you wake up in the morning and you say, good morning, Jesus. It's a great day. I'm looking forward to all that you have for me today. Now, understand, this new covenant does not mean that we're free to live lawless. And so I want to balance what I'm talking about here because, you know, Paul talks about this in Galatians here's what it means, here's, and here's what I want you to get from the heart of what I'm saying tonight about moving from Old Testament, Old Covenant law to New Testament spirit-filled living. <clears throat> it means that we're, we are not constrained by the law to do what's right and to not do what's wrong. But we are motivated by an inner relationship with Jesus in a renewed heart. And we do it because we desire to. 
So in other words, you move from a have to to a want to. And that's huge. You know, because I live so much, and I, and I think that's why it really took me so long to come to Christ, because I didn't come to tr- Christ until I was 23 years old. But I think one of the things that really impeded me, well, I know one of the things that really impeded me was, what, was I was just never good enough. I could just never be good enough. And I wanted to be good enough. I really wanted to be good enough, but I couldn't be good enough. And I was trying to earn God's favor in my life. And I was trying to earn righteousness in church. You can't earn it. Jesus, he's the only one that can earn it. As a matter of fact, it's very important that we understand. There is only one person who is worthy of heaven. One. And it's Jesus. And when you, when you die and you stand before God, here's what I'm telling you. You better hope he sees Jesus in you. Because if he doesn't see Jesus, you're not getting in. Because Jesus Christ is the only person who is worthy of heaven. And he paid the price for you and me. And he makes you and me worthy. Can I have an amen? amen. See, it's all about Jesus. The new covenant, the new covenant moves us from, well, you're not going to do that, and you can't go here, and you can't do that. Well, you better do this, and you better do that. It moves us from that, not because the law says we have to or we can't, but because we have just this inner desire that God is doing in our heart, and this incredible change has happened on the inside of us. Look at verse 22 of chapter 7. Because of this oath, Jesus is the one who guarantees this better covenant with God. Aren't you glad tonight it doesn't depend upon you? You TC guys, aren't you glad tonight? It doesn't depend upon your past. It doesn't depend upon how you did today. It depends upon what Jesus has done for you. And I'm telling you guys, listen to me, you get a hold of that, that's a game changer. That set me free. Because I lived my whole life trying to be good enough. I was never good enough for my dad. I was never good enough for a lot of people. And I thought I wasn't good enough for God. And it kept me away from God for years and years and years until God revealed to me he was my father and he loved me. And his son Jesus justified me. And his son Jesus made me right in his sight. And it wasn't anything that I did or I didn't do. Fact is, I didn't even deserve it. But God, in His great love, He just gifted us with it. Isn't that an awesome thing tonight? See, the new covenant doesn't depend upon man. In the old covenant, it did. In the old covenant, God said, If you do this, I'll do this. If you'll obey me, I'll bless you. If you will do what I say, I'll send rains on your crops. If you don't break my law, if you don't worship idols, if you don't do this and you don't do that, then you'll receive this. But that's not the new covenant. The new covenant doesn't have anything to do with us. God removed us from the equation. And he put his son in our place because we can't do it. But Jesus has done it for us. Isn't it great tonight to know that it doesn't depend on you? 
And man, church, as I close this message tonight in lesson four, that's what I want you to grasp, that it, it doesn't depend upon you. It isn't really even about you. It's about him. Jesus Christ is the perfect high priest forever. And because of what he's accomplished, you and I have this incredible relationship with Father God where we can wake up every day and know that God loves us, God's got a plan for us, and God's got a good day ahead for us. Amen? Amen. Stand with me tonight. Let's give God a hand clap. Father God, we just thank you tonight. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. And God, most of all, we're thankful for your son. God, thank you that you weren't stingy. God, thank you that you love us as much as you love your son, Jesus. Because you say it in your word. And God, I pray tonight that you'll reveal that to every single person in this room. Because that was Jesus' prayer. God, show them that you love them as much as you love me. And God, tonight I pray. That's my prayer, God, I pray tonight. People in this room, they'll experience your love. Not a life led by following all the rules and all the regulations, but a life led by your heart, the Father heart of God. God, help us, touch us, help us to know you, Lord. We love you tonight and we give you praise. Go before us this week. Bring us back Sunday. We give you thanks. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. Our prayer is that you will experience Jesus in greater ways. If you would like to learn more about how to give to the ministry of CMC, please go to cmchurch.com giving. Thank you for listening today and God bless you.